Hello. Today in the Loopcast, we have Professor Karen Cox, author of No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice, and the other book, Dixie's Daughters, The United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Preservation of Confederate Culture. And we're discussing a whole range of issues, notably the lost cause, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and normalizing extremism and extremist belief. So why the focus on the lost cause in the UDC, in the United Daughters of the Confederacy? So there are a couple of reasons. This doesn't cover everything, but these are the big three. One is, as researchers and historians, we have this question, which is, what is the cultural and aesthetic connective tissue between the Re Reconstruction Klan and the Second Klan? So what is between the terrorism of the Reconstruction Klan and this more aesthetically mimetic-driven group, politically conscious group of the Second Klan. What is connecting those two? Usually, when you read a history of the Second Klan, most authors will say it's birth of the nation. But we want to, that answer is not satisfying. We want to dig a little deeper, kind of really examine this. Uh, what is the aesthetic connective tissue linking Reconstruction to Jim Crow and possibly up to the Civil Rights era? How do we go from the end of the Civil War where Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and Alexander Stevens are traitors? There's no question about it. But then eventually they get rebranded as heroes fighting for the Constitution, fighting for states' rights, right? The mention of slavery gets diluted and edited out. How does that happen? Second, this period that we're going to look at today from 1894 to 1919 arguably the rise and peak of the UDC, is understudied in terms of extremism. Again, when we study extremism, we tend to focus on the first clan and then the second clan, and somehow Jim Crow and these other eras are left out. The end of Reconstruction, for instance, to the beginning of the second clan is left out or not examined as much as we would like. And then lastly, it's just odd that we don't study women enough in his, in the field of extremism, right? So <laughs> this might sound weird, but it, there isn't an, a lot of research being done about the role of women in extremist groups and in normalizing extremism, right? There's a couple here and there. There's Kathleen Blee. Kathleen Ballou had a chapter in her book, Bring the War Home. But again, it's something that we want to bring attention to and examine more. So with all that being said, please welcome my guest, Karen Cox. How's it going? It's going really well. Nothing like talking about lighthearted topics like these women. <laughs> uh, we get that a lot. Like it, Let's uh, talk about, let's just jump right into the worst of us. <laughs> yeah. So I, speaking of the worst of us, I kind of want to start with for you to define the lost cause narrative, what do we consider the lost cause? I think for a lot of us, we, for a lot of us that are online, we popularly run into people who say, you know, who repeat the state's rights memes or Robert E. Lee did nothing wrong. But yeah. from a historian's perspective, what is that lost cause? Narrative? It's that narrative as we understand it and study it is a mythology, not unlike other mythologies right? It's an overarching mythology with myth, myths embedded within the mythology. 
and gods in that are in the myth too. And people like Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson are the sort of the, if we, uh, the analogy was through to Greek mythology and Greek gods and Lost Calls mythology, the gods of that are Lee and Jackson. But, and then the narrative itself is something that emerged almost immediately after the war, Civil War had ended, and it was coined by a guy named Edward Pollard, who was the an editor for the Richmond Examiner, and he wrote books, and he laid out a blueprint for what it was, and essentially it was to, it was a mythology that allowed white Southerners to recover from defeat or understand their defeat and to turn it into something that was noble, a noble cause, a just cause. It allowed them to soft pedal slavery, consider it a benign institution and to say that we are the most American of Americans because we fought a war to de defend the constitution particularly the Tenth Amendment and states' rights. So it's a, a mythology and a narrative that allows white Southerners to see defeat in completely different terms than what it was. They can't end to see their cause as just. And, and what's interesting about the lost cause narrative is that each generation puts their own stamp. So initially, it's like the lost cause narrative is the same, the basic myths are the war was fought over states' rights and not slavery, and all white men were on board with the war, even though there was lots of desertion in the Confederate Army. It thinks like the slavery was a benign institution that Robert E. Lee is, he's just, he just becomes this godlike figure. And one of the things that begins to happen with that narrative is like the Ku Klux Klan becomes a heroic organization for saving the white South from quote unquote, Negro rule during the period of Reconstruction. And so, so there's a generation that's already putting its stamp on it. Another generation will expand that and, and make all heroes out of all Confederate soldiers. And they do that obviously through the, by erecting monuments throughout the South. And we were to fast forward, the lost cause then gets adapted for use during the civil rights movement and among segregationists, there was still talk about things like that, that states' rights is still viable in the context of the civil rights movement. And it's just one of these things that it's like, you can, it's what white Southerners tell themselves to feel better about the fact that they got their ass whipped. It's true. It is true. There was like, there was this sense that they were going to go into the war and the war would be over pretty swiftly because they felt they had the superior army and then they had their ass handed to them by the federal army. And then they go home and they're like, now they're trying to come to terms with not only defeat, but the fact that now 4 million people, 4 million slaves are now free. And that's another can of worms because of how they want to deal with that. But the because their belief even before the Civil War was that slaves at the time, the enslaved, were not prepared for freedom, were not prepared for citizenship. And so that's also in some way a myth that they tell themselves. I went all over the place with that. But it's it and you know what's interesting? I think what's most interesting about the lost cause is that narrative is still with us in 2023. That's the thing. It was so powerful and it was being taught generation after generation in the South and white Northerners 
bought into it too. In this day and age, not only Northerners, but other Americans living in all different parts of the country have bought into some of that narrative. Like the guys who showed up in Charlottesville. They say the organizers there were like, we're coming into Charlottesville. We're here technically to, theoretically, they were there to defend the potential removal of the Robert E. Lee monument in Charlottesville. But what it really was about white nationalism. But because you could go into that crowd, there would be, there are people who march around with the Confederate battle flag in their hands and have no Confederate ancestry whatsoever. So they can't make the claim that those symbols, for example, are just about heritage. So then, as you mentioned, the Lost Cause really starts off with right after the Civil War with Edward Pollard coining the phrase. What happens during Reconstruction? How does that, we start at the seed of Edward Pollard's writing. How does that kind of grow through Reconstruction and then up to the beginning of the United Daughters of the Confederacy? Oh. So, yeah, it, it begins immediately, too, with the creation of different Confederate organizations. It includes the Ladies, Ladies Memorial Associations. They were the first really Confederate organization that is, is created. And they and, and then men's organizations will probably let a little bit later. Women are on it right away through the Ladies Memorial Associations. And and then there are there's a group of former Confederate officers that form something called the Southern Historical Society papers in which they rewrite basically the history of the Civil War in 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 this in in these quote unquote papers. These things are published now. But so almost immediately veterans are rewriting the war and, and then women who are going to are going to play a critical role from the beginning after the Civil War, not only to make sure that Confederate veterans are moved to the those who died on the battlefield or reinterred in Confederate cemeteries, but they also begin a movement of involving children in the lost cause and also work to create you know, the beginnings of a Confederate Memorial Day in the South, which is in the spring. And so you'll get in the lower South, April 26th is the day, in the upper South, it's May 10th. And they involve, and so they'll, on, the, on those days, they go to the Confederate cemetery and place flowers and little Confederate flags on the graves. But they always, they usually in, in, involve children in that process. So that's, this is like one way that the Lost Cause narrative that begins and also starts to expand into a next generation. And Almost immediately, men didn't feel like they could take on this because they were like, we just were defeated. So <laughs> we think it's women's role to, to do the things that they were doing. And when Reconstruction comes to an end, you see the, you begin to see white Southerners say, open up about, about all of that. It's no longer just about making them feel better about defeat or to soften the blow of defeat, it becomes a full-on celebration of the Confederacy. And, and you see the emergence of veterans organizations 
early 1880s United Confederate veterans. And then there always be women's camps. They call auxiliaries to these men's organizations. And then you begin to see the very first monument organizations, 1877, which is considered by historians to be the end of Reconstruction, that period 1865 to 1877. In 1877, both in New Orleans and in Richmond, Virginia, groups formed Robert E. Lee Memorial Association with the intention of building the grandest monument they could come up with to Robert E. Lee. And the one in New Orleans actually went up in 1884. And then the one that everyone is more familiar with is the one on Monument Avenue in Richmond, which came down in the last couple of years. That one went up in 1890. So you, so Reconstruction is an interesting period because the not the narrative is defined and it begins to be defined. Edward Pollard's book is called The Lost Cause, and so there's that's there, but you don't really you don't really see a full flowering of the lost cause until Reconstruction comes to an end in the South. Because now they feel free to not only that are they going back. They are now being elected and returned to office, these former veterans, and they're now have more control over local and state governments. They feel very free to want to celebrate themselves at that point. And, and that's, it's, it begins happening. I, and one of the things I document in my book is that in, in, in Georgia, in Augusta, Georgia, in 1876, they already start planning this is like just basically 10, 11 years after the war's ended. They already start planning a grand monument in their town. And it's one of the first where you see an image of Robert E. Lee kind of embedded in, into the monument. So it's very early. They don't, they don't mess around. <laughs> they get right on it. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, women are part of that. So before getting to the United Doctors of the Confederacy, I'm curious, when it came to the lost cause, how did they choose who to elevate and who to move down? Because I think in our conversation with the Checkmate Lincolnites, Andrew, the creator of that series, it was really interesting that James Longstreet simply does not exist in the lost cause. He is written out. My question to you is like, how, what was the choice, Nick? Like how, why Robert E. Lee? Why Stonewall Jackson? Why Jefferson Davis, as opposed to these other figures? Yeah. It took a while for Davis because people were mad at Davis the, after the war. They were upset with him and they held him responsible someone for the defeat. But there, there's the most obvious reason is that Robert E. Lee dies in 1870, and he just becomes a martyr of some sort. But he also is someone who, you know, a person and someone who's this noble Christian warrior guy, right? This guy that they can hang on who is like very, not only a noble Christian, but a very masculine. He's just, he's, he's the representative of Southern manhood. And, and to elevate him is, in a way, is about elevating southern manhood generally 
white Southern manhood. Same with someone like Stonewall Jackson. He dies early, but he's like this martyr. He was fighting for the Confederacy and he's, he's this heroic figure. And then, but then where Jefferson Davis is concerned, it took a while, but Jefferson Davis then becomes a martyr figure because he's the one leader who went to prison. Right. He was, he went, to, they caught him and then they put him in Fort Monroe and in, in Virginia. And, and so he, that, the image of that, of him being in, imprisoned and he becomes this sort of martyr. And I've heard, I remember years ago, I went to the UDC headquarters in Richmond and they were having this event on the anniversary of Jefferson Davis's birthday. And there was a guy that, that likened him to Jesus Christ. So we're talking about, and, and it's not just, it's just not just then, but somewhere along the way, and I'm trying to think of the dates than this, when this happened, but someone created a crown of thorns for Jefferson Davis. I've seen it. I've seen it. And it's owned in actually in New Orleans by the, uh, there's one of the oldest museums in the South is this Confederate Museum in New Orleans. And it had this, this crown of thorns. So it really was this thing where they like, oh, and they would use language like he buys himself for the cause of the Confederacy. And then the home that he last lived in, which was on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, became known. And I think it's still, you can see, if you're driving along I-10 along the coast, the sign says, the sign is like the shrine of Jefferson Davis. Like they literally call it a shrine. And people would make pilgrimages to this, to see him. So this was like, he becomes this, it, Charles Reagan Wilson wrote this book called Baptized in Blood. And it was about the lost cause, the religion of the lost cause. And he talks about it as being like a civil religion. And so it really is, there's a lot of religious aspects to this. So that figures like Lee and Jackson and Davis fit into that. Probably Lee, as much as anybody, there are more monuments to Robert E. Lee than any other Confederate figure. But just the way they talked about Jefferson Davis was like almost sacrilegious, really. So in that vein, who are the villains? If we start with this idea of baptizing blood, that the lost cause is this civil religion, then who's the devil, I guess? Who's the ultimate evil in this case? And then who is just a normal person to be negotiated around? How do we, what is the sort of view of good and evil? Is it just Lincoln is this awful person or what is the nuance there? I think that definitely Lincoln is for some people, the devil in that scenario. And, but they, one of the things that they're not going to talk about, they're not going to talk about desertion, for example, because that's makes them look like we all weren't on the same page when this happened. And now that, you know, that we weren't all on the same page for the cause the lost cause. And yeah, so the sometimes it's like the people who get elevated are like, it's like local heroes. If you're throughout the region, if there, if you were to read through the pages of the old Confederate veteran magazine, which started publication in 1893, you would see there would be particular individuals and they were generally local heroes of some sort. So in Virginia, it's John Mosby. It's in, in North Carolina, it might have been the Civil War governor, Zebulon Vance. If it's 
it just depends, right? It's a state by state thing. And that this is the thing about the lost cause is that it's not really centralized, it's decentralized. There is certainly everyone buys in, right? They're bought and they've bought into the narrative. But the way the narrative gets expressed will vary from state to state. So it would be Mississippi will have its heroes. Jefferson Davis is one because he was from Mississippi. But so is Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was the original Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And you got names of, I went to school at Southern Miss, which is located in Forest County, named for Nathan Bedford Forrest. There's, but if you go go somewhere else, and it's going to be a different, in Alabama, it's going to be a different group. In Louisiana, it's going to be a different set of heroes. So let's skip forward to the United Daughters of the Confederacy. So this is, I want to say after Reconstruction, a little after Reconstruction, 1880s, 1890s. 1894, a little Eight, bit longer than, yeah. yeah. Tell us, who are the United Daughters of the Confederacy? What is this organization? What are they setting out to do? This is an organization that is intergenerational in that the very first group that I mentioned earlier were the Ladies Memorial Associations. And those women remained active for, there's my dog. Those women remained active all that time up leading up into the 1890s. And, and what happens is that a younger group of women, those that is those women who were born after the Civil War. And these are women who are middle class to upper class, upper middle class, whatever. They're not you know, laborers, let's just put it that way. And, and so there are these two generations of women that come together to form the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And they want to continue the work of memorialization, which is what the that first group did. But they decided to expand and what it is that women could do and would do in preserving the lost cause and honoring their ancestors. So when you talk about United Daughters, they are literally daughters of Confederate veterans. Some of them are their widows. And but the that first organization, that first generation of UDC members were literally daughters of of the Confederacy in that way, and they named themselves daughters of the Confederacy after Jefferson Davis's youngest daughter, Winnie Davis, who died young, and she was she had been given the name, the title, daughter of the Confederacy, because she was born in the Confederate White House. So everything has a meaning. You know? It's like everything has to, it's attached to something. So the UDC was a group that was founded in Nashville, Tennessee. There were these two women, one representing that older generation, one representing the younger generation that come, they started writing each other and said, we really, we need to like create this new organization and this is what we're going to do with it. We're going to, and so they, they, that first meeting of those women was in Nashville. There were only 30 women. And within 10 years, they had 30,000. And within, by World War I, they were 100,000. So they cast a wide net. They said, we're going to establish five objectives for the organization. And it was going to be were historical. That is, they were going to be monitoring history and producing history that they felt was fair to the South. And then there was going to be educational because they were very much focused on children they wanted to make sure children were being educated properly about 
the Confederacy and Confederate heroes and slavery and everything. And then there was going to be a benevolent objective. That is, they were going to work on like taking care of indigent veterans and their descendants. Then there was obviously the memorial, memorial slash monumental, meaning which is what they're best known for, the monuments. And then a social component. So anyway, so that was their that was their agenda. And they were extremely successful in every single one of those in the in, over the course of that first 25 years that I cover in Dixie's Daughters. And when it came to history, they were doing that. They were writing it, they were producing it, they were monitoring textbooks in the schools around, you know, what people students were being educated. They were, they did everything. They, the more people, women joined, the more they could do. And, and they were represented in every state of the former Confederacy, but also women who were, when Southerners, white Southerners migrated out of the South, which they did, they didn't stay in the South. If they moved to an area where there were other Southerners, let's say they go to a lot of white Southerners migrate to Detroit or they migrate to California then where there is at least seven women living in a town, they can form a chapter of the Daughters of the Confederacy. And so there were actual state, they called them divisions, state divisions of the UDC far away from the South, in New York, in, in Boston, in Chicago, in you name it. So, it. so they just cast a broad net. And they were women who were very educated. They were connected, very well connected through by marriage or family relations, family by blood and marriage, to men of power in the region or in their community. And and so you have women who are, and some of these women are the ones who I think become the most successful and, and in, and they actually use the UDC as, a, it's almost like a career. These are women who are really well educated. They're not going to go out and get a job because that's not what those women of their class do. But they can apply their education in the in in the promotion of the lost cause and and the Confederacy and, com, and what they consider Confederate values, and they do that, and they're very successful at it. They there are women who rise through the ranks to become the President General. That was the name or their title of the entire organization. And those women were like there were a couple women from Mississippi who did that, and they were both the daughters of United States senators. They were related to the, to that power, which meant in, in, in turn, because they're not asking for the right to vote. So they can use that power to say, we want money for this. We want money for our monuments. We want some, we want some say-so over school textbooks, whatever it might be. And, and they had a lot of influence political influence, even though they couldn't actually vote <laughs> and, but, and because of those relationships. And they were really a kind of a powerhouse organization. They raised tons of money for monuments, but they also, I say it's like a shakedown. They like went to these city councils or, or county boards, or they might go all the way up to the level of the state legislature and say, basically shame them into giving the women money. It's like, you all aren't doing the work of memorializing Confederate veterans, then let us do it. Give us the money to do those things. And uh, it's it, they're an interesting organization because they're very powerful politically, even though they would say, we're not political. They would, we're not a political organization. But yes, they very much were. They raised the equivalent of millions of dollars for monuments. 
for example. And, uh, and when the UDC met, for example, in 1912, they met in Washington, D.C., they were a guest of the president of the United States, William Howard Taft. So people recognized their power as an organization in the, throughout the region. But again, they existed outside of the South, and that's why you find Confederate monuments outside of the South. Something that I found interesting about the UDC was reading through your book, Dixie's Daughters, was how modern it felt, right? They're going to the textbooks, they're going to city councils, they're very much locally focused before they even start building this sort of national apparatus. From a historical standpoint, do we consider them like the originators, the pardon, the pun, the mothers of this technique? Because you see it with the Citizens Council mm -hmm. in the Civil Rights Movement, You're, we're seeing it now in, in Texas and yeah, Florida. One of the things I say is from the very beginning of our country, women were imbued with this like power through motherhood. And in, in the day, early days of the Republic, they call it Republican motherhood. These women would raise good citizens. But that's why we should educate women because they're gonna raise good citizens. So you fast forward up to when the UDC is involved, okay, well, I think you, you could make the argument that they are, they've got like laid out a blueprint for later generations of women to do what they have done in that making themselves known at, in, at state legislatures and having at the ear of politicians in their community locally. And this is the thing about the UDC is it operates in many ways on a local level. Yes, they have this large organization, but they really are operating at the local level or the state level. And because those are the people they know and they're related to, and they get so they they have easier access to those folks. And yeah, in many ways, they're they are laying providing a blueprint for other organizations later on. There's this concept among Southern women that somehow they'll have quote unquote indirect influence indirect meaning through their marriages or family relation connections, family connections. And so that's how the UDC operated. And so you'll see this, but it's so funny the way you think about a group like Moms for Liberty or something like that. They, it comes off, seems so innocuous, like a, a name for your group is Moms for Liberty. It's like moms aren't politicians, moms aren't political. And liberty sounds all free and everything. We're going to talk about ideas of freedom, but in, as a matter, the reality is they're very tied to politicians. They're in the ear of politicians and they're not about liberty at all. It's like, so the UDC is sort of this early organization that shows how women can be involved in their communities, in politics, giving speeches, which is not something that women were like supposed to be doing, Southern women were doing, supposed to, except the way the UDC would do it, it'd be like, oh, we're just here to honor men. So we're so they could get away with some of the stuff that they were talking about because they would present themselves as traditional women, even as they were doing something very radical for the and they were very modern in that, right, for their time. So we're just like they're, I think I refer to them as what was a term of the day of the 1890s when they were formed new woman. The new women were women who were who were willing to step out of the domestic sphere into the public sphere 
and do the kinds of things that these the UDC was known for doing, except the UDC members would individually say, we're just, we're just traditional women. And so they would downplay the political aspects of their organization. They would never say they were political, ever. And there's like someone like Mildred Rutherford, who was the quote unquote historian general of the UDC, who was from Athens, Georgia. I find her like speaking before the state legislature of Georgia against giving women the vote. She's an anti-suffragist, but she's, it's such an, it's like the irony of that. She's speaking against suffrage in front of the state legislature. She's being a political person in doing that and yet would say women don't need to be in politics. <laughs> it's, yeah. That's interesting because how do we consider them successful yet within their own actions, they're saying we're not political and yet we are political. That's... They're very political, but they wouldn't use that language. They wouldn't want you to think of them that way. And so at a, let's take a monument, for example, a monument, they might've, let's say they went to their city council or their county board of commissioners and said, we want this much money for the monument that we want to put on the courthouse in our county. And they would get it. So that's a political act. There we're going in front of these, our local representatives. It's a political act. Then the day of the unveiling comes and they're, they're the ones that are responsible for getting the monument there to begin with. They basically handpick men to speak for them. So they step back into the shadow and hand that, hand that over to the men. We'll just pick a couple of guys to give the, give the speech for the day of the un monument unveiling, even though they're the ones responsible for getting that monument there to begin with. <clears throat> so then I want to maybe step back and think about and specifically gauge their influence. It's something that I found interesting in Dixie's Daughters was their influence on the education system. And I was wondering if you can explore that for us, like how they changed the textbooks, how they were involved in the education system where each chapter resided. Yeah, so what I like to say to people is about the UDC is that no matter what you hear about them and is that they weren't just focused, they weren't focused on the past. They were focused on the future as an organization. And so in the future were, was the children. It's even in their constitution or original bylaws. We're going to, we want to work to perpetuate the values of the Confederacy onto the third and fourth generation. But that meant it could be fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth generations removed from the Confederacy. And so they did a variety of things. First of all, they had educational committees and they usually had someone who's in charge of who's like every, if you look at the structure of the UDC, the, you have the officers, you have an education general, a historian general, a vice president general, president general. So usually those the education person, the history person were involved in things at the local and state level. So what would they do? They would like, they did a variety of things. First and foremost, they formed an auxiliary called the Children of the Confederacy. 
every local chapter generally had one and they would they were like I liken them to an after-school program, an after-school club where children, and they were both boys and girls between the ages of six and 16, would go to these meetings and they would like maybe sing songs of the Confederacy. And then they would read from, they would something called the Confederate Catechism, which is a call and response, like a religious catechism, but it's questions about the Confederacy and leaders and history, etc. And so the leader of the organization, which was a UDC member, would say, was the war about slavery? No. The children respond, no, it was about states' rights. There are bunches, there are lots of those questions, and there have been several iterations of, a, of Confederate catechisms. So they had the children of the Confederacy. So that was one group. Now, within the system itself, the local schools, early on, they would they provided lesson plans for the for public school teachers they were monitoring what kind of textbooks were going into the schools they donated books that they thought were the most were appropriate for children to learn about into the school libraries and they wanted to make sure that was in there and they and and in the schools themselves they would place portraits of, of Confederate heroes and Confederate flags, their battle flag or the first flag of the Confederacy. Were, so these things were in, in these schools. And, and then they would have celebrations of Robert E. Lee's birthday in January. And they would do a special study of Lee's life or something like that. And you have, and all of this is done with the support of school administrators from the principal up to the superintendent. And, and it's very likely that some of those women who teachers were also UDC members. So there's just <laughs> children were like either learning it in the home, learning it at the, the lost calls in the children of the Confederacy, learning it in their textbooks, learning it from participating in these rituals in their schools and outside the schools. They would let the kids out of school if they were going to erect a monument. There's all these rituals in which rituals that children are involved in. And so they would get out of school and be part of a parade and they would go down to the monument. They'd sing their little songs, their Confederate song, put flowers around the monument. And then in subsequent on subsequent Confederate Memorial Days, they would they'd bring them out. Children would be part of those rituals as well. Yeah. So they really were they were really focused on those kids, on the white children of the South. Now if you that's just in the early days, right? When you get to the period of like in the, say, the 1950s and 60s, you begin to see, see in the late 50s, early 60s, they start to, the UDCs involved in making sure that public schools get renamed or new schools are named for Confederate heroes. The Stonewall Jackson Elementary School or the whatever, whoever's local hero. And they were still, as, as far as I can tell from going through some of my research beyond the period of my book, is that they were still involved in and involving students from public schools. It wasn't until the post-civil rights period that they're not as involved in that because now schools are 
moving toward desegregation. Of course, we don't really get that until after the Swan decision, but so they're they're still involved. And the children of the Confederacy still exist. It's still their auxiliary. And they do things like some of the things that they do that have always done is they offer scholarships to descendants of Confederate veterans. And and if there are like say Southerners who are descendants of Confederate veterans that are currently in the U.S. military, they do things like send little like care packages to those guys. So they they and if they're getting it, it's because of their links to a Confederate ancestor. There there's ways in which they're not the same group that you know today that they were in the early 20th century. But there are ways in which they they're, they still exist. But there what is they just don't they can't operate in the way that they operated during Jim Crow during segregation. They could do whatever the heck they wanted, and they because basically early on it was because black men had been removed from political life. They the Fifteenth Amendment was basically they turned back on that and started passing laws that would keep them from being able to vote and hold office. And so with Black men removed from the public sphere, women could move into those spaces. And, and then once Civil Rights Acts pass and the Voting Rights Act passes, they step back from that very public role that they had long had. And what you begin to see in the decades after those Civil Rights Acts are passed is that it's white men who step forward and who had never done so, not in the same way. I'm talking about just regular local folks who are going to begin to start, you'll see the a rise in membership in the Sons of Confederate Veterans. So like a big theme in, in, in your work seems to be this idea of true history versus revisionist history. And something that I couldn't quite remove myself from while reading about the UDC was that the same time period of 1894 to 1919 is the same time that we see the rise of the Dunning School and kind of the rise of this kind of revisionist view of reconstruction that doesn't get corrected until scholars like Eric Foner start doing their work in the 70s and 80s. I'm curious, what do you see as the role of a historian in all this? What do you see as you yourself, let's start there, as a historian, do you see yourself having to push back, having to constantly fight back, or is it more of an academic debate? What is that sort of conceptualization? Let me go back to where you first started. I would call the UDC the original revisionist. <laughs> okay, they're the revisionist, as was the, Dun the Dunning School. They were all together on that. I don't think academics are in agreement about what's about the what's accurate about history, for example, and whether or not the UDC was really promoting a true history. That's what they called it because they, and they, and it's a really interesting thing because what conservatives of any period do, seem to do is try to tr flip the script on people and say, oh, we're telling the true history and you're the revisionist. When the truth of the matter is they're the revisionist and they're not telling the true history. So in that period, so as a historian, in, if we were talking about today, 
yeah, it's a constant battle. <laughs> it is a constant battle because the lost cause is still very much alive. It's very much alive. And to lost cause history is revisionist history. Not, and you would think that I'm the revisionist in some people's minds, like historians are the revisionist. And no, I think that what we historians have done, and here's the thing about the Dunning School, those were considered professionally trained historians, right? And, but guess what? They're also racist. And, and so it, it took a few gener you know, generations of historians before they said, spoke back against that and provided the research and that that corrected that narrative. But yeah, I'm part of this uh, book that just came out this couple months ago called Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. And I wrote a, an essay about Confederate monuments, but their historians find themselves these days are often in, find themselves having to push back against the myths of American history. The lost cause for me, obviously the one I have to deal with most often, it's a big one. It's a big one because you, we still have to deal with it. That people will say to me, oh, people want to remove a monument. They're trying to destroy history. No, sir, they're not trying to destroy history. That was never about history to begin with. These aren't history. Monuments haven't taught us the first history lesson ever. That's interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. I was thinking about it and thinking on it. It's It almost seems like the UDC are very good at creating memes and creating, I hate to use a present and a, a modern kind of framework, but they are very good at creating heroes, memeing, creating repeatable and easily understandable images and ideas, whereas going through W.E. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction or Foner's Reconstruction, there's such a level of density. Even though those two books are the truth and reality, but I can't imagine bringing like Eric Foner's Reconstruction to an, like a regular person and be like, this is the truth, not you picked up at lostcause.com or whatever. Yeah. I would just say this about it. I do think that historians, I know one of the things about Myth America was that we were saying we, it needed to be accessible, right? The, the, the essays we wrote on all these variety of topics needed to be accessible. I've long, I've always tried to write an accessible history because I think that's where we start when we lose people in the density of that kind of thing. And I'm not saying those things aren't valuable, right? Those, they are valuable. We need that knowledge. We need Foner's knowledge. We need W.E.B. Du Bois' knowledge. But if we're talking about today and the days of social media and people's attention span being about as long as a tweet or what, wherever that's going next, who knows? Yeah, I think there's, it's very important that we're communicating the work that we do in a way that's accessible and easily understood. And I think that a lot of us had used Twitter that way. And I think Twitter, because it's imploded a little in that, you know, that it's, that may have been the thing is let's just disperse all these like what they would have called liberal thinkers or whatever so they can't find each other and continue to have this conversation so i would i've used social media 
a lot. And I do things like this. I do the podcast or I've done, I work, done a TED ed lesson. Enough, several years ago, I did this Vox video that went viral called, it was titled how Southern socialites won the history of the war or something like that. I forget what the title is, but anyway, doing those kinds of things has learned, has taught me that those things are really important to get gaining the attention of younger people in particular that vox video is like i don't know 4.2 million views it's crazy that's crazy i was like i wish i could get a, a dollar for every view that i got because it was based on it was based on dixie's daughters so that was a real eye-opener for me that the way that thing went viral so every chance i get i do podcasts i do radio interviews i do whatever because I think that one of the things that's important is to try to communicate with people and meet them where they're at. We can still produce the knowledge, right? We can still be producers of scholarship, but then there's then there's the part about communicating that scholarship to a, a broader audience. I've always tried to do that. I'm working on a book right now, but as I work on that book, I also think about the ways in which I can present that work. How can I do this? And so when I wrote No Common Ground, which was just a history of Confederate monuments from 1865 to 2020 and following George Floyd's murder, my whole goal was like, how can I get write something that that could be used in a classroom, people would read, Community activists might find it useful. In other words, let's tap the brakes on the jargon, please. I just, I've never been that person, any of that kind of writer anyway. But I think that it is really important because we, and there's a lot of us out there that's continue to do that. I think what Heather Cox Richardson does with her letters from an American are just, just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. She's, her Substack is like the most popular Substack out there. Joanne Freeman at Yale, she's also one who is who's constantly communicating history in all sorts of formats. The two of them together have a podcast, but Joanne Freeman also has a, a, a sort of public lecture online that she does with teachers, for example. Yeah, so all of, I think that it's just a long way of saying I do think historians have an important role to play in communicating what they do to a broader audience. Now, not everybody does it well, right? We know this. It's not everybody should have a podcast. Not everybody should, not every, but those who can should, if they can. And I just, I don't know. I think that's probably what's the, some of the most important work I've done in the last few years is write public pieces, op-eds, speak to people on, on radio or podcasts, and I've been in a few documentaries. On that note about audiences and who we speak to, something that I found interesting about the UDC was, I might not be able to faithfully capture this, but the debate within the organization about reconciliation and vindication, how it, if I understood that the chapter correctly, how it presented itself outside of the South and to, to Northerners. So in that sense, could you explore that for us? What was... All right, well, we'll just go back in time to that early UDC group because what the UDC wanted more than anything was vindication. They want, vind they want, that's to be, they want to vindicate their 
fathers and their grandfathers, their mothers and their grandmothers, because they considered, you know, women were part of the Confederate story, right? And so they wanted them to be vindicated. And the way towards vindication was, was that Northerners had to acknowledge their patriotism, their dedication to the Constitution, et cetera, all the things that they would they say about themselves. And, and that's only on those terms could there be reconciliation between North and South. And so you begin to see that begin to, it starts to happen with at veterans reunions, even in the 1880s, because they, they get beyond that maybe 20 years out from the Civil War and they don't want to rehash all that. They want to move forward and they the North wants a, definitely wants an economic relationship with the South and wants to restore that. And when these veterans come to me, they're all misty eyed and shaking hands and and probably asking themselves how they got themselves into that war to begin with. So there's a there's an effort at reconciliation then, but then as what I see, and that's what became Dreaming of Dixie, that book after the book on the UDC, which is that that you see the adoption of the lost cause in popular culture. And the producers of popular culture, mass culture in the late 19th, early 20th century are coming out of the North. You've got all your publishers are New York, Philadelphia, Boston. Your plays are being performed in New York. Then there are music publishers. They're in places like Chicago or whatever. And you have people who are, in other words, the Northeast or the, the Northern states had the infrastructure and the industry to to promote the lost cause in some ways because it didn't exist in the South. The South was still pretty much agricultural region and they didn't have great industries. So if you look in the back of the Confederate Veteran Magazine, you wanted to order, let's say, a book, a real pro-Southern book. It's probably coming from a publisher in New York. If you wanted to buy souvenirs for going to a veterans reunion, you might be buying it from someplace in the Northeast. There was a, a company out of New Jersey that made Confederate flags. There was a company in Ohio that made reproduction Confederate uniforms so they so the these old Southern veterans would have something to wear to their Confederate veterans reunion. And then and then you would see Ten Pan Alley, for example. The songs coming out of Ten Pan Alley were very much these these songs that were like upbeat tunes about the South. And they were they played on the tropes of the old South, the the old plantation home, the the faithful slave, the mammy figures, etc. And, and then the very first of the silent movies, not just Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, obviously, is the one that everybody will talk about because it is it is the most successful silent film of all time. And it totally is a lost cause film. But it's also based on a book that was written by a Southerner. But Hollywood does that, right? Hollywood helps to spread the lost cause. And then you have, because there were other ones, Buster Keaton's film called The General, which is about a, a train. But anyway, that's a little bit of lost cause stuff. And then you get into what they were then called the talkies, movies that were where you could hear sound. One of the things I tell about in the Dreaming of Dixie is that before Gone with the Wind was even 
published, 75 Hollywood films were set in the Old South. They might not have been popular, you might not have known who they were, but some of the ones that the people would recognize are Shirley Temple films, like The Littlest Rebel or The Little Colonel. Those were both very much pro-Southern, set on the plantation, all of that stuff. And then, of course, Gone with the Wind comes out, and then it's like full-on, full-blown, lost cause on in full color on the screen. And it's it and it becomes probably one, the most influential film about how people perceive the South for years after that. Until until of course people started to see young black children being hosed down the street in Birmingham on their evening news. So it, part of that's about technology. The technology of television kind of replaces the technology of the movies. So we just, so what I'm saying is like this, the lost cause wasn't just, yes, it's something that develops in the South, but it's expanded on and giving up. It's being illustrated in, in movies. It's being in song, in all sorts of things in popular culture. And Jemima, hello, is an old South icon, which is like part of the lost cause, the faithful mammy. There's a trope right there, you know, that, and, and guess what? Aunt Jemima was a creation of Madison Avenue. So it's not just white Southerners who are, they, that myth is maybe born in the South, but it, it gets expanded and manufactured and spread across the country through these industries of, of mass culture. I'm trying to remember the quote. It's, it was about slavery, but it applies here. Like it's, sectional in character, but national in application, saying we tend to view slavery, Jim Crow, through the lens of the South, but in reality, it was actually much more far-reaching. And in this sense, cultural production is not being done in Atlanta, it's being done in New York, it's being done in Chicago, etc. Exactly. Yeah, Hollywood did a real number on Americans about what the South was and and had romanticized the region, even as Jim Crow was just making Black people's lives miserable. The thing is that it was what you'll see among journalists, for example, Black journalists will say that how damaging Hollywood is to the cause of civil rights. And they're saying this in the 30s. So they know how powerful movies are in shaping perceptions of African-Americans. Because it's while they might be focusing on the old South, but what people are thinking is, that, oh, isn't that charming? Isn't that funny? I wish they, I wish Black people still behave this way. And this is, and you get a lot of criticism from Black, the Black press, but also NAACP. They have meetings with executives in Hollywood saying, hey, can we do something about this? Because this is really bad, right? This is really damaging. And it wasn't until you you didn't get a real blowback in Hollywood until Song of the South came out in 1947. But even then, it was still popular with American audiences. This, I find that interesting because Birth of, the, of a Nation was like surprisingly modern for something 
like that was a silent movie, like the way that they filmed it, the way that from strictly a cultural perspective, it was, it really brought in the audience. Like sitting here in 2023, we were able to say, oh, this is really modern, but I can't imagine what the effect would be in 1915 if you're seeing that for the first time and you're oh, seeing yeah. those wide angle shots and whatever else it's yeah there was a udc member who was the one who initiated the idea of creating a monument in stone mountain outside of atlanta who said who went to see birth of a nation and she was so excited by it she said she thought she should talk to the sculptor and say I think, you know, what would look really nice on the side of Stone Mountain would be a group of basically clansmen on their horses dressed in their nighttime attire. Yeah, that, that could have happened. That could have happened. It could have been on the side of Stone Mountain in outside of Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. The, why Southerners loved it. And it was very excited about that. But then, of course, our Southern president, Woodrow Wilson, showed it in the White House. So I want to switch footing to a question that has two threads. One is we here at the show repairing for shows like examining lynching and that sort of violence and kind of reading IDB Wells and boys and all them. And then the other thread going into this question was Dixie's daughters. One of the critiques that was leveled at you by David Blight, by a historian, was that there isn't enough Black, I hope I'm capturing this correctly, there's not enough Black agency or Black perspective. And I want you to address, address that critique. How do we incorporate Black opposition to the UDC, to monument building, to memorial building? How, does, well, how do we I, understand that, that perspective? Yeah, I think that when I wrote the book, that was my dissertation, and it was I was writing that in the 90s. There's certainly black newspapers were not digitized. I probably didn't even have access to any in my school. And, and I, I recognized that was a thing, a deficit of the book because, but I was clearly, I was writing, but my book was about the UDC, right? And so I, that's what I was writing. Everybody wants you to write the book they want you to write in a review. But that said, when I when Dixie Stars was reissued, I made an effort to correct that somewhat in the in the in a new introduction to Dixie's Daughters. And then I had a real shot at doing it because I had now I do have access to all the digital digitized black newspapers. And so I did that much more fully in in No Common Ground. And so I think that I think in 2003, when the book was published, Dixie's Daughters was published, it's a combination of things. It's one that I was working on the Daughters of the Confederacy. I wasn't writing about, first of all, there had been nothing written about the United Daughters of the Confederacy. So I did have my hands full just writing about these women. I was trying to understand who they were as an organization. I also did not, probably did not have really good access to Black newspapers at the time, which would have given me some sort of sense of what Black communities were saying. And and, and as I said, as what's interesting about it all is, of course, is that how the landscape of history has changed on the over the issue of Confederate memorialization and monuments and everything. If you had said to me in 2003, you're going to be writing 
about the UDC again in another 15 years because this stuff is going to blow up in your face. I would I wouldn't have thought that. I I have to say, I if someone just a few years ago I would have said to you, there's no way those monuments on Monument Avenue are coming down in Richmond. I would never have believed it could happen. The great thing is that we can we have an oppor- we have opportunities as historians to revise work as long as we're alive. Like some of us <laughs> aren't around and do the revision like Dunning should have done. But but so I'm actually you know, I'm I think of course David Blight is also much more focused on race and that sort of thing in himself. But I think that what I did was I'm proud of what I did. I'm proud of the book Dixie's Daughters because I do help people, I think help them to understand who those women were and the major impact that they had on shaping Southern culture in the 20th century, such that we're still dealing with what they created today, a hundred over a hundred years later. And then of course, No Common Ground, which came out in 21, was a completely different book. And I could do those things. I also think that in the last, I think ever since the Charleston massacre at the Mother Emanuel Church in 2015, that 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 changed a lot of historians' views of how they might talk about this history. It's not an innocuous history. People buy into it and believe it with such passion that they're the most radical of them would be willing to go in and take people's lives over it, over an idea about race that's in part informed by the lost cause. I totally agree at the show, like our research in, into kind of lynching cases. We started with the Philip Dre book by hands unknown, and then the Margaret Burnham book by hands now known. And it was fascinating to me how much perspective was built from the black newspapers. It was, it was just fascinating to me because it was just like, it was, just, it was a matter of perspective of somebody literally just taking the prism and saying, look through Ida Welby's, Ida B. Eyes or right. some Du Bois work. And then suddenly the, kind of the vision of the topic completely shifts, completely changes. And it was really cool, actually. It absolutely changes. uh, I'm so grateful for the technology of digitizing newspapers that make not just one or two, but numerous Black newspapers available to us as historians and scholars. And I'm working on a topic in which I have to rely heavily on Black newspapers. And I'm so grateful for that because it's, you're right, it's a completely different way of seeing the past around a topic that most whites, Southern whites of a certain period would have just waved off. Whereas you hear from African Americans exactly what this meant to them. So one of my friends and fellow historians is Hillary Green, who teaches at Davidson. And she's writing a book, and I think she's close to finishing, so it should be going off to a publisher soon, but about African-American Civil War memory. How do they remember the Civil War for themselves? And we haven't, we don't have that in 2023. So 
her book is so important to our understanding of how how African Americans regarded the Civil War, especially given that four million people were emancipated because of it. I think we covered a lot today, and I, as always, we always ask the legendary last question, which is before we go for the day, leave us me, the audience, whomever, something to think about, something to chew on. This can be a phrase, it could be a quote, it can be a longer answer, it could be a segue, but this is your space to give us something to think about before we adjourn for the day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this, that all? Wow. Oh man. I think that I want people to know that historians like myself who've dedicated their whole career to studying the past are very, we have a genuine passion for it. I know that I do. And I would like for people to, and it's probably not your listeners, <laughs> But maybe, who knows, to take a step back from the, what we know to, is the truth. I didn't think I would arrive at a point in my career as a historian where truth was taking heat like it gets from various sectors of the American public. And I think people should know that we take these things very seriously. We're, I, we try to be as thorough as possible in, in the research that we do. And very often the research leads us to the conclusions that we make and not necessarily because we have a particular political point of view to make. Sometimes we do, but I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I am so tired of hearing the word woke used against what I do as a historian. Woke as... Joanne Freeman said recently can mean nothing and it can mean everything. So I would like for people to, to take a step back before they start throwing that word around. And if they do, then they need to be willing to respond to the question, what do you mean by that? What is your definition of that? Because I just take what I do so seriously. And I'm like a little terrier about information. I like, I, if it'll help me to complete it, write a sentence, I will dig and dig to get it because I want it, I want it to be right. I want it to be correct. And I think it's a noble profession. <laughs> I do. I think we do good. And as we've talked throughout the course of this conversation today, I think it's one of the things that we benefit from is different perspectives in a different lens through which to look at things. So again, when I wrote you wrote my book, I, I didn't have that. I think I have it now. And some of that's training, but I think in the course of the last 20 some years, there's a new technology out there that allows me to delve into that perspective. And it really is, like you said, it's just like looking at a, a subject with a completely fresh set of eyes and you could write about a topic five different ways if you want to. And that's the thing that people don't understand is there's not the founding fathers and then that's it, right? There's not just one interpretation of what the founding fathers did. There are several that can reveal all kinds of things about the people that we study. So I don't know if I 
gave you what you wanted, but just, I love history. It's been my passion since I was in junior high school. I can't think of doing anything else than what I do. And I look forward to writing the next book. Those were brilliant words by Professor Karen Cox, author of No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice, and Dixie's Daughters, the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Preservation of Confederate Culture and Dreaming of Dixie, How the South Was Created in American Popular Culture. We'll have a link when we publish the show. What All three books are well worth your time. Go get it. I'll go get them. Excuse me. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you. It was fun having the conversation. Of course.